Welcome back to the 202nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. And today, it is Christmas. So, Merry Christmas to everybody out there who is listening on the day of. If you're listening after, happy belated Christmas. And if it turns out that you're listening next year before Christmas, then happy really early Christmas, mid-early Christmas, just early Christmas. So, sorry, had to at least say that one. Merry Christmas, everybody. And, of course, we'll be flipping through some of our top stories today, two of which talk about the college experience for Gen Zers, you know, some positives, negatives, so on and so forth. And then a interesting article talking about how the steel industry in America is going downhill. There's a big acquisition happening. And I think it talks more, if I'm really to highlight why I think it's important, it speaks more to the lack of industrial base and the outsourcing of our industrial base to other large companies in other countries who are continuing to keep their industrial base alive. And I think there's an interesting discussion to be had there. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive, ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So if you were to go back and maybe you didn't go to college, but for all of you who did go to college, would you do it again? Especially seeing how the job economy is nowadays and seeing how it's really a lot more skill-based than necessarily degree-based like in previous generations. Would you still go to college? Would you still do everything the same way? Would you maybe go for a different degree, maybe go to a technical school? I'd love to hear all of your insights on this one because it really leads into our first article that comes from Business Insider. Gen Z is the new threat to the American college experience. And honestly, you know, that headline doesn't surprise me. Gen Z seems to be a threat to practically everything. And as a person or a member of Gen Z, I can definitely say that I don't feel like we're assimilating too well with the previous cultures. I feel like the millennials were the same way. And it probably is that way with every single generation. We're going to look at the kids that come out after us, Gen Zers, and we're going to be like, oh my gosh, they're, they're so foreign. They're so different. They're not assimilating. So let's see what Business Insider has to say when it comes to why they are not necessarily ruining the college experience, but I would argue they're ruining the network, the business that has built up around the college industry throughout the last 50 years here in America. Quote, it didn't take Sadie Shaw long to realize college wasn't for her. When Shaw was in high school, she said it was never a discussion on whether or not she would go to college. It was simply the reality for herself and her peers. Quote, it was always just something that was a part of my plan, Shaw, 22, told Business Insider. My parents went to college and so did my brother. All my extended family went. It was just completely normal to me. And it wasn't really until I got to college that I realized that it wasn't what I wanted to do. Shaw isn't alone in her attitude towards higher education. Business Insider, in collaboration with YouGov, conducted a survey in July of more than 1,800 Americans across five generations with more than 600 respondents belonging to Generation Z above the age of 18. According to the results, just 39% of Gen Z said advancing their education is important to them, and 46% of them said they don't think college is worth the cost. So, Let's be clear, that 46% can be people that have already been through college, they're going through college, or they're 18 and maybe they're taking a gap year, or they're not even considering college at this point, but that's almost half. 
what think think about that think about half of the population that you're serving half of the population that you're trying to talk to so let's say this is really expandable let's say that this is statistically on point they got a good sample size and they're able to extrapolate it into the entire population 40% 46% of your group that you're trying to target Gen Zers who are just about 18 if not a little bit younger or maybe a few little older ones that are trying to go back to college they think that the experience is not worth it imagine if you're a toy company and 46 percent of the people buying your toy or who could buy your toy who are in the demographic to buy your toy think that it is not worth it i mean come on that has got to be a stab to the heart these colleges are like oh my gosh what is going on here and we've had discussions in the past why this is the case Uh, a lot of people like to ascribe it to useless degrees and while i don't necessarily disagree that there are lots of useless degrees out there um, at least in my experience at my college, they weren't pushing useless degrees. They weren't saying, oh, yes, you should take this path instead of that other path. Now, different professors who were in different departments and probably wanted their funding uh, for those departments, as well as just liking certain people and seeing the skills that would be required in those fields, in the students, sure, I had other professors you know, push me or say, hey, maybe you should consider this. I was like, no, thank you. Thank you for uh, you know, flattering me or, you know, at least thank you for taking me as far as you have. But um, no, I'm not going to go do that program. And my college overall, they didn't, like I said, they didn't really push you towards any of these specific programs, but they do exist. So it still comes down to personal agency. But the people that are going to college for those degrees, I... I don't know. I would highly doubt. I would be skeptical if they said that they don't think college is worth it and they're getting a degree like they're getting. Maybe they're really passionate about it and they still don't think that college is affordable or worth it. But if you're actually taking an introspective look and you're saying, hey, yeah, no, I really like this degree, then you should probably be thinking, oh, well, how many job opportunities is it going to get me? How is it going to enable me to pay back my loans? So you should be more introspective when you're thinking about these sort of things. And if you're saying that, you know, I'm going for a really obscure degree that's not going to get me anything and I think college isn't worth it, maybe you should reconsider what you're doing with the money that you're spending there at college. But, you know, that's just me. The other half of it is that, or I would say maybe another quarter of it, is that the job market nowadays does not require as many advanced degrees. You can be a computer programmer, and maybe for the higher level stuff, they want you to have a degree, but you could probably get online certifications. Honestly, just showing off your code, showing off the work that you've done, that you've just learned from Google, from just picking it up over time, that can be enough. Guess what? What I'm doing right now here with podcast, uh, just doing this could lead to possible if I'm good at it, which you know, I would argue that I'm probably not even close to mediocre. But the fact is somebody who's passionate about it can sit down, do this job, mix the audio, and then possibly come out the other side as a producer if they know the right people or even just start producing for some of their other friends, gain those talents, understand how the industry works. You can get a lot of experience on the job nowadays. And it's not necessarily like apprenticeships back in the good old days where you were going down to the Smith or you were going down to the coal mines and you were doing an apprenticeship. You were learning the different tricks of the trade. 
But there's still a lot of, uh, I would say, kind of white-collary jobs nowadays or white-collary positions that can be learned solely from experience and also because of the wealth of knowledge out there on the Internet, the wealth of opportunities that people have to start making money before they even get to college, just like this uh, lady Michelle did. These are all ways to enable you to move forward without having to get a college degree and to have that experience and put it on your resume. And you don't have to say, oh, yeah, I sat down for four years and I learned some stuff. Who cares? Nowadays, who cares about the, the humanities, the philosophies, all these sort of things? They don't want to, not everybody, you know, there are some people who care about it. But a lot of people aren't going to sit there and say, yes, I want you to be able to decide between this moral distinction. I want you to be able to explain this moral principle to me, this uh, worldview. No, no, no. They, people don't care about it. People didn't care about that before, but they could pretend that they did because, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, oh, yes, we went to college. Ooh. Because that was really the only path forward, and they could have these high-minded conversations and pretend that it mattered. But now you don't, you don't have to. You don't even have to go to college in order to get those skills, so you don't have to hide behind the pretense of all these other things that come with college that some people would find necessary, some people wouldn't, but were really the base meaning, the whole purpose of college at the very beginning before it became a a job training simulator like these humanities. So let's talk a little bit more about Miss Shaw. What is she doing with her time and how is she making her money and why did she not want to go to college? So, quote, So two months after starting school, Shaw dropped out. It's not that she didn't have a single regret. Currently, she was making money as a TikTok creator and selling fitness plans online, along with working as a store manager at Plato's Closet, a shop that resells gently used clothing, and she said she earns more than enough to fully support herself financially. And it also talks about how she was reselling clothes back in the day before she was actually even in college, and that gave her a good understanding of the business world as well. So like I said, it's all about those opportunities that are out there. It's the -the on-the-job training that you're able to do. If you're out there and you're learning about the the business world, you're learning about what kind of loans I should take out, uh, what's the interest rate, guess what's going to hit you harder? Is it going to be a theoretical conversation when you're there in a class, you're really going into the the deeper stuff about it, or is it going to be when your money is on the line, you're going to learn lessons really quickly. You're going to be like, oh, shoot, okay, hey, don't make that mistake again. And it may hurt a little bit more. It's a little bit more risky, but it's definitely going to resonate. It's definitely going to sit with you for a little bit longer. So, What are the other things that come along with college? I mean, lots of costs, right? You know, in order to go to college, you're taking on a lot of debt, whereas some of these people are getting straight out there into the business world. They're just making money real quick. They may be taking out some loans, you know, hey, mom, dad, could I take out a loan? Or, hey, bank, you know, I've been a a good customer for two years and I want to get out there on my own. Could I take out a loan? So they could incur some other costs, but compared to college costs, I mean, come on. Quote, it's just not worth it for some young people to pay thousands of dollars in tuition and take on thousands more in student loans and risk getting a job that might not even make use of their degree. Anna Hernandez-Kent, a senior researcher with the Institute for Economic Equity at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, highlighted, let's be clear, hold on, can we just, so wait, hold on. She's a senior researcher with the Institute for Economic Equity at the Federal Reserve Bank in St. Louis. First off, why is a Federal Reserve Bank actually doing equity research, shouldn't they just be, never mind, never mind, never mind. This is one of those positions that 
you get because of a college degree and a, a degree in economics, but uh, equity economics, you know, one of those degrees that might be a little bit out there, but sorry, that's beyond the point. Uh, quote, the research on Gen Z's perspective on higher education. According to an analysis of Federal Reserve's 2022 Survey of Household Economics and Decision-Making, Ken found that less than half of Gen Zers who are black, Hispanic, women, and went to college but didn't graduate, thought that the lifetime financial benefit of college would outweigh the cost. And this was the previous perspective, that at the end of the day, when you go to college, it's not just getting training, it's investing in yourself. And we are a culture that has always you know, looked, tried to look forward. We've always said, hey, if you're a responsible person, you're going to be investing for your retirement. You're going to be investing for your house. You're going to be investing in yourself. And college was one of those great tools that was seen as, yeah, yeah, this is how you really invest in yourself. You elevate your mind. You learn to be disciplined. You learn how to take on different problems. You directly have case studies and you deal with a lot of these practical problems that you may not deal with until the fourth year of business, but hey, at least you know how to handle it or at least you've talked about it so you have some idea of how to go about these sort of things. But nowadays, not everybody is seeing it that way. And this is the pinch for the colleges because at the end of the day, if their value proposition is not enough to bring in Gen Zers, who are already a shrinking generation when you talk about domestic population, not out, you know, not population from other countries, which we are bringing in a lot of uh, international students into the United States, so they can offset it for a little bit. But the domestic population of youngsters is going down ever so slightly, and less people are seeing value in it. So guess what? They're going to start losing money very, very quickly. That's why you've probably seen a lot. Lot of different uh, universities retool recently. They're bringing in more up-to-date programs. Remember that coding experience that I was talking about, how you can mainly do that online? A lot of schools are starting uh, these computer science programs so that they can entice these people who could learn it online, but they can learn the deeper theory. They could uh, come out with a little bit more prestige. Once again, they're trying to up the appearance of college and use that prestige in order to leverage more people coming to their university. But as we talked about, a lot of people are seeing through that prestige and they're understanding at the end of the day, this is not as valuable as it was during my parents' time. I shouldn't have to be pressured or I'm not going to be pressured into doing this because of social norms, because of social standards, because of all the people around me that did it. So it's going to be a very big pinch for these colleges. They're going to start to lose money. They're probably going to downsize on staff. Maybe, you know, I've talked about it before. Maybe they could cut some of the bureaucrats out and that may save a little bit of money. But even then, that's not going to stop the full bleeding that is going on. So that's one aspect of the college experience for the youngsters. The next one is a, a really, I don't want to say negative, but it's uh, it's a little bit hard-hitting, and it comes from the Cato, or the Cato Institute, but Cato.org, and the headline reads, the GOP stimulus package for campus DEI. So, for those of you who have listened for a while, or are even aware of any cultural battles, any culture war battles that are going on, even though I don't necessarily love that term, because it's really inflammatory, but sometimes it, it feels like it is <laughs> actually is relevant, and it makes sense. Um, so you may have heard about the DEI programs that are coming into all these different schools and they're promoting diversity, equity, inclusion. You probably have, if you're going to college now, you probably have a DEI officer, if not an entire department, depending on how large and how far down the road in this process your college is. 
And they're all about promoting minority voices, uh, groups that aren't necessarily always or haven't historically been represented on colleges, um, providing a opportunity for these people to feel like they are a part of a community that cares about them and to try to include everybody, not just the people who are normally the college population. Like they're doing a lot. They were for a while doing a lot of program for women uh, because at the end of the day, women weren't as, I would say, for most of the late 90s, you know, college was attended generally by more uh, men than women, but it was a really slight, it was very, very slight, and now it's completely inverse. So you may see some of these diversity, equity, inclusion uh, groups, even though I don't think they'll actually do it, but in theory, if they stick true to their premise, they should actually start doing more promotion and inclusion events for males. Not that we really need it, but the point is that they probably should do that if they're going to stay true to their message. And a lot of these DEI offices have implemented very specific rules about how people can interact, how they should interact on college campuses. If there are certain violations of these DEI rules, it can be uh, evaluated by that office, so on and so forth. And the Republicans have been criticizing this for a long time, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, don't you dare try to push that ideology on people in college, on our kids, or just on the population in general. We don't want your DEI at college. We don't want your DEI on the workforce. We don't want people to expect this DEI department to become a normal part of their life. Uh, we feel like it's actually limiting what people can say, limiting people's freedoms, limiting the intellectual exploration that could be allowed at college because you can't have a thought that may be a little bit controversial to the DEI narrative because it could be perceived as trying to slight any group that would be uh, protected by the DEI office and so on and so forth. There's a lot of different aspects to it. It's a lot more nuanced than I'm giving it credit for. There's no doubt about that. But like I said, the Republicans have been really, really pushing back against it. And the Democrats have been defending it. They're saying, hey, we're trying to make it a more inclusive place. And now, guess how things have flipped a little bit. Actually, I take that back. If you go off the premise that the Democrats are trying to make it a more inclusive place and they're willing to you know, have a little bit, I don't want to say a little bit of controversy because it's controversy from one side they'll have but not the other. They're sticking true to that premise. They're allowing these more controversial viewpoints on uh, Gaza from Palestinian people, pro-Palestinian people, to be allowed on their campuses. And you saw, maybe you didn't see, but maybe you heard about the leaders, the presidents of uh, Penn, MIT, Harvard, all going in front of con Congress, and there was the whole breakdown, oh, you can't say that this is a violation of your anti-discrimination policies, uh, you can't say that this anti-Semitic rhetoric is bad, that you would condemn these people, so on and so forth, and it, when I first heard it, it really did. It really did remind me of how people on the left would say, "Well, you can't, you can't talk about this bigoted behavior. You can't talk about this this racist language when it wasn't outwardly racist. It just maybe uh, had I don't want to say undertones because even then that gives it too much credit. By the people who are trying to misconstrue it, it could have been construed as racism if you look at it from the definition of racism." 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10, maybe even 10 years ago, even though it was a little messy then, it, it wouldn't be considered racist. But because of the higher bar and the microaggressions and all these sort of things, there's a hyperly narrow focused view through which the DEI people look at things, which is oppressor versus oppressor. And it's allowed them to say, no, 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 any oppressor group 
we can call them out. We can be not nasty, but we can be a little bit mean. We can judge them. We can force them to judge themselves. But any oppressed group, no, no, any introversion is not allowed whatsoever. And now you have people on the right who are saying, whoa, 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 hey, you can't question. You can't question any of these Jewish students. You can't allow their feelings to be heard. These are these are microaggressions or these are macroaggressions because they're calling for the, the death of Israel, so on and so forth. Or they're just saying that Israel should be questioned. There's a whole bunch of different scenarios. And when you hear the people on the right going immediately to the emotional response, like, whoa, whoa, you can't criticize this. You can't, you can't hate on this. It really, really feels like the tables have turned here. And I just, it, it reminded me when I heard about this article, I was like, yes, this is 100% true. They sound like the critics that they hate so much. They sound like the people they've been raving against so, so much. They are falling into the identity politics rabbit hole just because a certain group has a certain identity, just because they are of a certain ethnicity, does not mean they get special privileges because of it. That does not mean that they have to be protected just inherently because of it. And when I say protected, I mean everybody deserves to move about and not be afraid of getting harmed. When I say protected, I mean with rhetoric, with um, verbal sparring, or, you know, these mandates, rules that are trying to be pushed through Congress, or the enforcement of rules in an even-handed way on these college campuses, which, hey, sounds great. Make sure that the any rule is even-handed. But when the rule is stupid to begin with, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you should even-handedly do it. Maybe you should just repeal the rules, so then it's just flat across. But yeah, and never mind, never mind. That goes a little bit too deep into my own little uh, hatred of particular rules and authority. Yeah, that's, that's not for me to say. Let's jump to the article. Quote, House Republicans are waging war against woke anti-Semitism, and they smell Ivy League blood in the water. The Hill reports, viral video of Rep. Elise Stefanik roughing up, roughing up three college presidents at a recent congressional hearing has already forced one, Penn's Elizabeth McGill, to resign. And last week, the House passed a resolution calling the other two, Harvard's Claudine Gay and MIT's Sally Cornbluth, uh, I'm sorry for mispronouncing your name, man, to follow suit. One down, two to go, Stefanik crowed. Okay, then, what declare victory? And yes, I know it's a little bit weird. Their punctuation is a little bit weird there. Now, the next point that they're going to make is the more important one. Stefanik and her colleagues have drawn attention to a serious problem. Elites academia's captured of an illiberal orthodoxy branded diversity, equity, and inclusion. But the GOP's pressure campaign is doomed to backfire. Its most likely result would be to spawn a new layer of speech-suppressing bureaucracy on college campuses. If Republicans hate the, the DEI regime so much, why are they handling it or handing it a stimulus package? And this is exactly it. Instead of completely rejecting the framing that these different groups have used... They are saying, no, 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 we're, we're going to accept what you're, what you're going at. And we're going to say that now you have to restrict the free speech of somebody else in order to protect a different group. They accepted the framing and then used it as their own weapon, which 
let's be clear, that that is a tactic in and of itself. If you want to say, hey, we're going to play by the exact same rules here, we're going to make you sta- make your standards apply to everybody. We're not going to let you get away with it. We're going to pressure you to take on the burden of the rules that you have created. That is a worthwhile solution sometimes, but it takes a little bit of introspection from the other side. It takes them willing to admit that they did something wrong, which none of these colleges is are going to be able to do. They're not going to be willing to do it. Too much of their thought process, their uh, academic intellects are really bought up in the DEI movement. So they're not going to reject it wholesale and say, oh, well, okay, we realize, you know, you're pointing it out to us. We realize we were wrong. Uh, we're going to flip tail and run on this one. No, they're just going to say, okay, hey, you, you want to pressure us like this? We're just going to restrict free speech more. And that is the thing that is so frustrating. That is the thing that is so sad. Because by buying in to the framing that has been put out there by people on the left, and I don't even want to say on the left, because I know plenty of people on the left who don't necessarily fully buy into the DEI framework. I know lots of liberals who are not progressives who don't buy into it. I know some progressives economically that don't buy into it uh, you know, socially. So there's a wide swath there. But for anybody who has bought into the DEI narrative and they're saying, well, no, you know, this this class is actually it isn't an oppressor. Uh, it isn't oppressed. So it's a little bit of a different dynamic, blah, 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 blah when they are like really pushed up against the wall, instead of outright denying their oppress oppressor narrative, their diversity, equity, and inclusion narrative, they put too much into it. They have put too much time, energy, money, and just intellectual effort into validating their opinions on this one. So they're not going to give it up just because you start pressuring them. The thing that should be done here is outright rejection of the ideology. But nope, because the Republicans want to have a cudgel to use at this point, because they want to beat the liberals over the head with their own weapons, because they've been angry, they're they're frustrated with all this time that they've had to live under the boot of the DEI kind of stuff, uh, guess what? They're going to actually fall into the exact same hole that they criticize the other side for falling into on a regular basis. And it's just ironic. And it is so, so sad. But guess what? That is the college experience for most people nowadays. And uh, how about kids? Just don't just don't go to college. Don't don't fall for it. Go do an online apprenticeship. There's some great code uh, websites out there that teach you. I tried for a little bit. I didn't have the patience for it. But maybe you do. Just stay out of the university system. Go get an actual skill and, and you'll do absolutely fine in the world. All right, so let's jump to our last story that comes from the American conservative Stop the Steal and spelled S-T-E-E-L. So just like the metal. Now, like I said, this is talking about the purchase of you know one of the largest U.S. steel manufacturers. It's actually called U.S. Steel, and it's agreed to be acquired by the Tokyo-based Nip- Nippon Steel. But there are challenges that are coming from different legislators, and they're saying, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. we can't give away one of our largest steel manufacturers to another company from another country, especially one that's uh, provided subsidies by their government. It's not necessarily nationalized, but it definitely is more of a national industry. We can't give away some of our industrial base. We can't have foreign actors, foreign governments this directly involved in our economy, blah, blah, blah. You know all the talking points, and I'm not trying to discredit them by saying blah, blah, blah. Uh, 
I'm just trying to make it a little bit faster. The reason that I think this article is worth a read and the framing that I want to give you before you go and read it is the question of what is happening to the American industrial base. What used to be a lot of the jobs in this country? Uh, creating of products, industrial base. Uh, we used to create a lot of cars. We used to create a lot of steel, different building materials, practical items, not just, you know, consumers' goods like this uh, beautiful, I mean, hey, I'm not going to hate on it, this beautiful can of Diet Coke I have right here next to me. Yes, it is about 5 a.m. in the morning, and I did drink the Diet Coke. I needed the caffeine. Sorry, that's a little bit off the point, but it's a little consumerist can that will be chucked away very quickly versus a gear that we used to make for a really piece of a uh, really heavy piece of machinery that actually made things function. We used to provide things to the world that were necessary for their machines to work and necessary for their buildings to grow up. We used to have an industrial base that created products that lasted a long time that were really hard to make and allowed us to have very valuable jobs here and export them at high cost. And now we've lost a lot of that industrial base. We're losing it to other countries. This is a great prime example of another country one of their largest steel manufacturers coming in and saying, hey, we're going to buy one of your largest steel and one of your most historic steel manufacturers. So we're slowly, we used to just kind of offshore, we used to send our production to other places, and that's happening too. But now we're even having our own industrial companies bought up from underneath us. Now the free market is going to work how the free market is going to work. That's what happens when you open up to the world. There are going to be other companies that make a good chunk of change. They're going to like your product. They're going to want to penetrate the U.S. market. So they're going to scoop it up. I'm not negating or trying to fight the free market principle there, but there is definitely a conversation that needs to be had that we need to start actually I don't want to say encouraging citizens because then the government's going to try to step in and do it. But we as a society need to say, how can we start producing things again? How can we start producing value, adding more value rather than it just being financial value? That's where a lot of our money's coming from nowadays, financial services. And I've said this before, and I've always tried to make this point. What happened to London and England in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, sorry, late 50s, 60s, and early 70s? They became a financial hub after their industrial base was going away. And guess what? They are a second-rate first world power, if that makes any sense. They're still a world power, but they're a second-rate world power. And most of their influence comes from their history rather than their current position, even though they do have some uh, strong military assets and they, they have a few you know strategically made trading deals and things like that, especially being right on the border of Europe. They can possibly uh, you know do a little bit of finagling and say, oh, some of the shipping goods have to come through England. But the point that I'm trying to get at is that was before their fall, and now we are becoming a financial hub rather than a production hub, and that will probably be our fall too. So we need to readdress how we think about these sort of things. Go read this article if you're really interested because, like I said, it is something that I wanted to frame properly before you go and at least understand their arguments. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that everybody's going to love what they're having to say, but it's definitely worth the read. So our last article, you know, our daily delight, it comes from Parade Pets. Baby hippo taking a bath or baby hippos taking a bath are a true timeline cleanse. And I mean, 
looking at the picture of this little guy, they are not wrong. And the article starts with, quote, it's easy to fall in love with newborn animals. It doesn't matter what species they are. Once we see their adorable faces, it's easy to forget how big they will grow up to be. And I mean, it's, it's really true. Uh, at the end of the day, there's still a naivete that you can see in babies' faces and young people's faces. And you can sometimes see it in animals too. And I don't know if that's anthropomorphizing them or not. But, you know, sometimes you look at them like, oh, you don't know how hard it's going to be. You haven't been, uh, you haven't seen the the worst parts of life. And I'm, I'm not saying that I have either. But there's definitely things that, you know, come up as you get older and that naivete kind of goes away. So it is adorable to see a newborn baby. Uh, but, you know, they make another point here, which is, quote, nature sure knew what it was doing by making all babies so irresistible. These little cuties might just have you asking Santa for one this year. And I don't think I'll be asking Santa for one, especially one of these hippos, because, gosh, they're going to get big. But they definitely are adorable, and I get the author's point. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of these guys, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday, a little bit less formal, less scripted, just kind of off the top of the head, whatever I'm reading or something that came to mind. And I think I talked about the, the soul the other day and why having a soul is important and why the distinction between humans having a soul, not having a soul, uh, can inform a very specific worldviews and things like that. Not the most in-depth conversation. I'm sure there are people who do it a lot better than I do, but it's just something fun that I like to do over there. A little bit more short-term content. So with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.